Hello and welcome again to this sixth Bible study in the life of Samuel. Please be turning to 1 Samuel chapter 12. Last time we were comparing King Charles's coronation with the coronation of Saul. King Charles was anointed behind a screen so no one saw what was happening. Saul was anointed in private by Samuel. In Charles's case, the kingship was affirmed by the Archbishop of Canterbury. I said, do you recognise this man as being your king? And people said, yes. And in Saul's case, the prophet said, see the man who is the Lord's chosen. And then in Charles's case, he was publicly acclaimed as king. God save the king. And in Saul's case, they shouted, long live the king. In Charles's case, he was given a Bible by the moderator of the Church of Scotland. In Samuel's case, he wrote scripture. He wrote down for Saul and for the people what they should expect a king to do and how he should behave. And at Charles's coronation, there were some who didn't accept it, especially in Edinburgh, where they had large banners up saying, not our king. And in Saul's case, there were scoundrels, it said, who had no respect at all for Saul. They despised him and brought him no gifts. And in the case of Charles's coronation, it was in the context of worship, a communion service was held. And in the case at the end of chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, there was the offering of burnt offerings and fellowship offerings were sacrificed as a part of the final acclamation of Saul as the king. So Samuel has less to do now. There's a king in charge. So he decides to retire. And in chapter 12, he gives them a farewell address. And in the first verses, he speaks of his own integrity. 12 verses 1 to 5. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I'm old and grey and my sons are here with you. Remember them? I've been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. The anointed is Saul. Whose ox have I taken? No one's. Whose donkey have I taken? No one's. Whom have I cheated? Nobody. Whom have I oppressed? Well, you haven't. From whose hands have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? No one's. If I've done any of these things, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day, Saul, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. In this speech, Samuel says he has given them a king. He's led them since he was young as a priest and as a judge, but now he's old and grey. God's anointed is taking over. In all those years when he was in charge, had he stolen anything? Had he cheated anyone? Oppressed anybody? Taken any bribes? No. He was like Moses said of himself in Numbers chapter 16, I have not taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. Unlike what Samuel had warned them kings would do. Remember back in chapter 8, he said, when you get a king, he'll need a court, he'll need a palace, he'll need courtiers, 
he'll need provisions, he'll have to put on big banquets, he'll have to tax the people. Samuel had done none of those things. He was a man of integrity. He had never taken advantage of his position of power or authority. Integrity is when you are, when you're being watched, exactly what you are when you're not being watched. Integrity is being an open book. Integrity is having no side. Integrity is having nothing to hide. Integrity is being like Jesus. And Samuel's integrity had set an example for Saul. And in verses 6 to 15, Samuel describes the integrity of the Lord. He said, look, I'll present you with evidence of God's integrity. He took Jacob from and his family down into Egypt when they, and they cried for help. And when they cried for help under the taskmasters in Egypt, God sent them Moses and Aaron. And under the leadership of Moses and Aaron, there was the exodus when they were led across the sea and across the river into the promised land, verse 8. But in verse 9, they forgot the Lord their God. And when they forgot the Lord, they suffered defeat. And so in verse 10, they cried out to the Lord and confessed their sins. And then God responded and sent them judges. He names them Jerobeel, that's another name for Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, Samuel. He mentions his own name in that list. These judges have delivered you from your enemies. And more recently, Nahash had wanted to attack Jabesh Gilead and gouge out the right eyes of all the people there. But Saul's leadership had defeated them. And the people had said, we want a king, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now you've got a king. Now if you obey God, and if the king obeys God, everything will be fine and dandy. But if you rebel, Yahweh's hand will be against you. And then God authenticated Samuel's prophecy with a miracle. Verse 16. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain. And you will realise what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die, for we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Gilgal did not get thunderstorms in the summer months. April, May and June were the time of the wheat harvest. It was the dry season. We don't get four foot of snow in Derby in June. And they didn't get thunderstorms in Gilgal in June either. This, I think, I'm open to correction here, I think this is the only miracle recorded of Samuel. The only time when God directly intervened with an act of God's own to demonstrate the prophet's authority. It was the opposite of what Elijah did later. Elijah later prophesied there would be no rain in the country until he said so. Samuel is saying, there's going to be a thunderstorm as a sign of God's favour upon my ministry. Verse 17, you will realise what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. And when he said that, and when they heard the thunder and the rain was pelting, 
They were terrified. In verse 18 it says they were, that the people stood in awe and the people asked for prayer that they wouldn't all die there and then. Samuel said, don't be afraid. You've been given a second chance. Don't turn away from God again. Serve the Lord from this point onwards with all your heart. In other words, don't let this great sin of demanding a king define you. You got it wrong, but you can move on from this point. And if you follow the Lord, God's blessing will remain upon you and with you. Don't go after useless idols again. Verse 23. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. Samuel was going to retire. He was going to retire as their judge and as their leader. But he wasn't going to retire as their prophet and he wasn't going to retire from prayer. Prayer and teaching were going to continue to be his role. As for you people, fear the Lord, serve him faithfully. But if you don't, you and your king will perish. Now in chapter 13, we have Saul's first great error, which enraged Samuel even more. Samuel was angry that they'd chosen the king at all, rather than trusting fully in the Lord. Now in chapter 13, his rage is made fiery even more. Verses 1 to 4. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear! So all, the Israel, so all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Saul's first battle. Two armies. Saul has 2,000 men. Jonathan has 1,000 men. This is the first mention of Jonathan, his son. We'll come across him again. Jonathan had attacked a Philistine outpost and beaten them. And it says Israel has become obnoxious. Actually, it says Israel had become a bad smell in the nostrils of the Philistines. Saul took the credit for it and he summoned the armies to muster at Gilgal. Now, Gilgal was the first place where the children of Israel had settled after they crossed the River Jordan. And it was the second place where Saul had been acclaimed king in earlier chapters when there were no doubters. Well, in verses 5 to 7, the Philistines responded with force. Remember, Saul had 3,000 men in all. The Philistines had 3,000 chariots, each with two drivers. Well, one to drive 
and one to throw spears or, or to use a bow and arrow. 6,000 men, plus an infantry so big nobody could count it. And the Israelite morale dropped like a stone. It says they hid in caves and thickets, in pits and in cisterns. In other words, Saul and Jonathan's army was, was dispersing. They were just running away in fear. Some of them even crossed the River Jordan to the eastern side where they felt safer. The Philistines were superior in weaponry and in numbers. And the Israelites were panicking. And it says in verse 7, Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. And his numbers had dropped from 4,000 to 600 in verse 15. Saul's army was scattered. They'd lost their nerve. They were terrified. Let's read what happened in verse 8. Saul waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against us at Gilgal and I've not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul had been, told, Saul had been told to wait seven days. He was on edge. For the second time, he'd been told to wait seven days. The first time he had, but this time, Samuel's not arrived. Day five, no Samuel. Day six, no Samuel. Day seven, no Samuel. I'm the king. I've got to do something. Everybody's looking at me for leadership. I've got to show leadership. I must take some initiative. What earth can I do? I know what. We, we haven't asked the Lord for his help, have we? Uh, bring me a burnt offering. Bring me the fellowship offerings. Uh, let, make an altar quickly here and I'll offer them on this altar to the Lord. At least the Lord will then be on our side. And in the middle of those offerings, which you should never have offered because he wasn't a priest, Samuel turns up. You can imagine Saul's heart going, oh no, of all times to choose. I've caught red-handed making these burnt offerings and peace offerings, fellowship offerings, your Bible might say, to the Lord. And Samuel says, what have you done? Didn't God say to Eve, what have you done? Didn't God say to Cain after a murder, what have you done? Saul knows he's done wrong. He starts making excuses. He said, well, my army was scattering. You hadn't turned up. The Philistines were assembling and I hadn't sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer these offerings to the Lord. You have done a foolish thing says Samuel. The withering power of an understatement. 
Do you remember when Prince Harry had his uh, famous car crash interview with, with Oprah Winfrey? And the Queen responded, and she said, recollections may differ. The power of that understatement. She didn't say, Harry, you're a lying toad. She didn't say, Harry, nobody can trust a word you say. She didn't say, Harry, you've turned your back on us and now you're just being vile to us and making up stories. No. The power of an understatement. Recollections may differ. Simon says, you have done a foolish thing. Ever felt like that? Ever felt you've been such a fool, such a dimwit, so brainless? You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you, Samuel said in verse 13. Earlier, remember, Samuel had explained and written down in a book for the people and for the king, rights and duties. Here is Saul at the first test, failing. Samuel said, be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. But Samuel thought, I can improve Israel's chances today by disobeying the word of God, by disobeying the prophet. And of course, there were consequences. The consequences were there in verse 14. Now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has found a replacement, a man who is after God's own heart. And we who know the book think ahead to David, but we think further ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Saul went back to Gibeah to his army of only 600 men. Paul quotes this very story in the book of Acts, chapter 13. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So you see how this story in 1 Samuel chapter 13 is being picked up in Acts chapter 13. Well, there was an aftermath in verses 16 to 22. The Philistines started sending out raiding parties, not, not major battles, not full set battles, but raiding parties just to plunder and to demoralise the Israelites in verse 17. And then the Philistines, who used iron, they were in the Iron Age, they refused to sharpen the Israelites' tools. Now, the Israelites were in the Bronze Age and they had bronze instruments for farming. And if they needed to be sharpened, they had to go to a Philistine town to get them sharpened. But the Philistines imposed enormously high taxes on that if the Israelites wanted their kit to be sharpened. Then we're told that only Saul and his son Jonathan had a sword or a spear. The other soldiers in Saul's army only had bows and arrows and slings. Now what then can we get out of these two chapters? How can they help us? How can they instruct us in our, our Christian walk? In chapter 12, we heard about integrity, that Samuel was outwardly exactly what he was inwardly. Are you outwardly in public just what you are 
privately? Is your life, generally speaking, as genuine and real and honest as it is when you're in secret or when you're on holiday? No hypocrisy, no wearing of a mask. Didn't Jesus say, blessed are the pure in heart? Bless those whose hearts are not mixed, mixed in their motives, mixed in their thoughts, mixed in their direction. Integrity, Jesus had integrity. Samuel had integrity. Another thing we can get out of chapter 12 is don't let a great sin define you. Samuel's quite clear to them. They had sinned against the Lord by deciding to have a human king. But, he said, if you obey the Lord from this point onwards, it'll be fine. Keep the Lord's word. Love the Lord. Obey his commandments. And all will go well. Don't let this foolish sin define you. Repent and then carry on in a godly way. That's one for some of us, isn't it? Something's happened in our lives. It's been a major stumbling block. It's been a car crash in our spiritual walk with God and somehow we think we're defined by it and we'll never get over it. Yes? The cross gets over it. The atonement of Jesus through his blood gets over it. You can move on from that car crash of sin, but move on in obedience to the Lord. Don't abandon the king for useless replacements. That's what they did in chapter 12. They, they abandoned the king, or the, at least the people of um, Jabesh Gilead wanted to abandon the king for following false gods. Jesus is our king. Somebody said, do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor they can they rescue you. Therefore, they are useless. Jesus is your king. And every false king out there is a fake, is a counterfeit. Don't abandon the true king for useless replacements. Something else out of chapter 12. Prayerlessness can be sinful. Somebody said, I'm retiring as your judge, but I'll still prophesy and I'll still pray. Far be it from me to sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And maybe there are people whom God has put in your mind and really they're your prayer project. Be faithful to that prayer project. Don't sin against the Lord by failing to pray for your prayer project. And then in chapter 13, when God is too slow, don't take a disobedient initiative. That's what Saul did. God never works to our timetable, does he? God never turns up on time. God always makes us wait. God always tests us by doing things when he thinks they're right rather than when we think we're right. And Saul took the initiative and he paid the price for it. He lost the kingdom. His children wouldn't be king. The tribe of Benjamin wouldn't be the tribe of kings. Saul said, I can improve my chances by disobeying Samuel. We say, I can improve my chances by disobeying what God says in this book, in the Bible, which is the word of God. Don't feel God is being too slow that you need to take a disobedient initiative. Don't improve your chances by disobeying the word of God in the Bible. Trust and obey 
For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Amen.